Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Welcome to the Parish of Calvary St. George's on this third Sunday of Lent. I want to thank Jake over there in the Holy Land for giving me a chance to preach and to thank all of you for being a steadfast church community and extending so much love and grace to me over the past few years. So here we go. In our gospel reading today, people are gossiping about the latest tabloid headlines in Jerusalem. Did you hear about those Galileans who Pilate had murdered and then mixed their blood with the sacrifices in the temple? So scandalous. Whatever are we going to do with those Romans in our city? Did you hear about that tower that fell down there in Siloam and killed 18 people? I can't imagine what they must have done to deserve that. Whether ancient or modern, we love talking about a disaster story. There's an odd mixture of horror and relief. Horror that it happened at all, but, if we're honest with ourselves, relief that it happened to someone else. And here we see something added to that relief. A suspicion that maybe these poor people have brought the disasters down on themselves because of being extra sinful. This suspicion increases the relief because people use it to reassure themselves that they can continue to avoid disasters in the future through being an extra holy person. Now, I want to pause for a moment, because on the surface, this doesn't seem to be a sentiment that one hears very often in New York City. I can pretty much guarantee that no one at your happy hour after work on Friday rattled off the latest New York Times headlines and finished with, I think they're being judged for their sin. But it is a belief that sneaks in in more subtle ways. Think about the swath of school shootings we've had in this country and the responses that people give. Too bad those kids weren't nicer to the shooter when he was so isolated. Or, can you believe his parents didn't realize that he had a closet full of semi-automatic weapons? This is an inherent part of human nature, to look at others and figure out how we're better than they are so that we can avoid their fate. We make up narratives in our heads that explain away the disasters other people experience because we are desperate to convince ourselves that they aren't going to happen to us. Somehow we're different, and if we do everything right, we can avoid them. In our passage, Jesus squashes that idea the first chance he gets. Directly and clearly, he says that these victims are not worse sinners than anyone else. The fact of the matter is that death is waiting for us all. Death entered the world as punishment for sin when Adam and Eve ate from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Because we all inherited original sin from Adam, we all suffer the consequences of that sin as well. Jesus doesn't say that the victims are not sinners. He says they're no worse than anyone else. We sin, we die, that's it. There's no ranking system by which worse sinners experience more gruesome or tragic deaths. In the epistle reading, Paul is making a similar point. While he doesn't state the exact issue that's behind this passage, you can almost imagine the Corinthians saying, Paul, we don't have to worry about the Israelites and what happened to them. We're different. We have Jesus. But Paul warns against this thought pattern. He points out that the Israelites had spiritual assurances. They were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, and they received spiritual food and drink through manna and water from the rock, which was actually Christ. 
They had the presence of God with them, revealed to them in tangible, physical ways, and yet they still turned away from him. The Israelites are an example to us, a warning against relying on a spiritual resume of sorts. Now, obviously, knowing Jesus matters. If it doesn't, then we should just all go home. But if we think that knowing Jesus means we're better than other people, then we've missed the point entirely. Jesus' presence with us in the sacraments is meant not to prop us up as better than other people, but rather to remind us of our weakness and our dependence on him. So our human tendency is to feel superior to others. In the midst of this, Jesus calls us to repentance. In the face of the universality of sin, judgment, and death, it is the one option open to us. Repentance is a translation of the word metanoeo in Greek, which means to change your mind. It's like turning 180 degrees, not just diverting your path off to the side, but instead stopping, turning, and heading back the way you just came from. It is a drastic action, a complete change of heart. Now, people will frequently equate repentance with a decision to stop sinning. But this is where things get a little tricky, because as humans, we rarely, if ever, actually accomplish a 180-degree turning. On a good day, we might manage to make it 120 degrees or so before we slip back into our old path, headed straight into sin. And Paul warns us about this in the epistle. He says, So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Essentially, the worst thing we can do is think that we've managed that 180-degree turn because that brings us right back to where we started in this gospel passage, thinking that we're better than other people and can avoid sin and all of its consequences. J.R.R. Tolkien and his Lord of the Rings trilogy gives us a picture of this. We have a fellowship of nine sojourners on a quest to save the world by destroying the one ring of power, a ring that makes the wearer all-powerful but also corrupts the hearts of everyone around it. The ring is carried by Frodo, a hobbit or a little halfling, and the other eight members of the fellowship have sworn to protect him as he journeys to destroy it. However, desire for the ring has taken hold of Boromir, a man whose homeland is on the verge of destruction by murderous armies of the orcs of Mordor. Boromir convinces himself that he is able to resist the pull of the ring to evil and can use it for the good of his people. There's this dramatic scene where he gives a heart-wrenching speech to Frodo, begging him to give him the ring so that he can protect his people because they are true-hearted and they will not be corrupted by it. But the minute Frodo refuses to give him the ring, Boromir attacks him and tries to steal it from him. He thought he was standing firm, that he was free from the temptation of the ring that so many other people had given into, and then fell prey to it himself immediately afterwards. This is what Paul warns us against, the presumption of believing that we're capable of resisting sin. So then, if repentance isn't about making a foolproof plan for resisting temptation, what is it? The change of mind that repentance requires is a change from the belief in human self-sufficiency to an acknowledgement of our weakness and our desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. It is a change of mind that brings us from standing tall and proud to falling to our knees at the foot of the cross, where we find forgiveness for all past, present, and future sins. 
Our comfort and our repentance is not in our ability to stop sinning, but rather in the knowledge that Jesus has already forgiven us for not being able to do so through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. We see this idea illustrated in the parable which completes the gospel reading. We have a poor fig tree, which has not produced any fruit over the previous three years. The vineyard owner has come to pronounce judgment and asks the gardener to cut the tree down. Rather than complying, the gardener advocates for the tree. Give it one more year. Let me attend to it carefully. And the vineyard owner relents. This is a beautiful illustration of God's patience and forbearance in wanting everyone to come to repentance. God is ready to pronounce judgment on Israel for its sin, and Jesus says, wait. Wait for me and for my actions. Wait for the cross. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God delays judgment for our sake to let Jesus' work on the cross come to fruition. And come to fruition it does. His sacrifice digs into the hard soil of our hearts and loosens it up. Receiving the Eucharist each week provides the nutrients that our soil needs. Coming face to face with his work on the cross reminds us of our weakness and teaches us the humility that leads to repentance, to a knowledge of our failings and our utter dependence on his mercy and forgiveness. And as that soil is loosened and as those nutrients seep in, the fruit of repentance blooms. So the fig tree has nothing to fear when the vineyard owner comes back to administer judgment because Jesus points to the fruit and says, see what my work on the cross has grown. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.